following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. We've been looking over the last few weeks at some passages from the Gospels. So we're delving into a few of the Gospels on the back of the series that Adam Clarkson did with us and looking at some of the words of Jesus, some of the deeds of Jesus. Uh, we looked a couple of weeks ago at that passage of Jesus cleansing the temple and uh, turning the tables in the temple. And then last week, we just looked at that one verse as we had all the, the baptisms last week. And we looked at that verse where Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, uh, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we talked about what that means to die to ourselves and to take up our cross. So today, I want to jump over to Luke's gospel, and we're going to look at a passage from there. We're going to look at a parable in Luke's gospel. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with, with parables and what they are, let me just quickly um, set the scene. Parables are basically stories. Uh, stories are one of the main ways, probably the main way, that Jesus taught people. As he wandered around from town to town and from group to group, he would use these stories and he'd tell these stories and he'd tell stories about all sorts of things, just everyday things, everyday things that you'd experience in, in first century Israel, uh, coins and sheep and farmers and servants and masters and widows and judges and uh, families and all sorts of just the, the way that people experience life, these stories that people could relate to. And he'd use these stories to talk about the kingdom of heaven, which was harder for people to understand. So he'd use these really everyday stories to invite people in to this. And they'd find themselves in the story. And they'd start to realize, oh, I'm one of the characters. You're telling the story about me. And then they'd start to find their place within the story and figure out what it meant to live into this kingdom that Jesus is describing. So they're a fascinating thing to study, the parables. And Jesus told many of them. They're all through the Gospels. But I want to look at one this morning. Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be. It's an important parable, um, particularly in Luke's Gospel, for the unfolding of that Gospel, a parable about a feast, a banquet. So Luke 14, if you've got it on your device or the paper Bible, open it up. Let's read. All right, so this is a story about a feast. And if we're going to talk about feasts, we've got to, we've got to get in the zone here. We've got to get our minds in the right zone. So I want you to think about the last time that you had a really good feast, just a really good banquet, you know, not, like, not, not just like a good feed, but a feast, you know, like a meal that was really well prepared and a beautiful setting and great company and just this lavish feast. Maybe it was a, a wedding or a graduation or an anniversary of some kind, some really special occasion where you had this amazing meal. Uh, probably for me, it was a wedding. I love weddings uh, and I particularly love wedding buffets. Nothing like a good wedding buffet. And I'm a bit of a shocker at the wedding buffet. Uh, a bit of an embarrassment to Anna, I think, sometimes, because, you know, you get to the buffet line, and at the beginning of the buffet line, there's always the, 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 the appetizers and the hors d'oeuvres, you know. I just go straight past all of that. Don't have time for that. Life's too short. So I go straight for the main event, straight for the meat, straight for the, you know, the, the full-on meat and veggies dishes. And I know, with the buffet, I know you're supposed to assemble on your plate foods that actually go together, and form a meal, a coherent meal, but I'm not worried about that. I'm quite happy to have a curry on top of a steak, on top of a piece of battered fish, on top of some pork chops. That's fine. I'll just keep going. In fact, the more layers, the better. And then it's a journey of discovery. 
as you start eating this thing and work your way down. It's like, oh, I didn't realize I'd put that on my plate. It's fantastic. And you've always got, see, here's the trick. You know, if you're a rookie buffet person, you've got to always keep your eye on the guy at the end of the line who's carving the meat. Too many people get to the end of the line. They don't have room on their plate for the meat. So you've got to make sure when you get right to the end, you've still got room to drape a couple of nice pieces of ham or beef, or whatever it is, right over the top of everything else. Like an awning on a tent, you know, just over the top there. Nothing like a good buffet, I say. Now, I don't know whether this, this banquet that Jesus is talking about was a buffet. It probably wasn't. I don't know if they had buffets in the first century, but we know it was a feast. This was a good old feast. This was a banquet that Jesus is, is describing here. So we've got to be able to picture that. And in fact, the, the context in which Jesus tells this story is also a feast. So it's a banquet within a banquet because Jesus is sitting at a banquet as he tells the story. He's been invited to a feast at the home of a Pharisee. And so there's a whole bunch of people sitting there. And Jesus is there, and they're interacting, and they're just having, having a beautiful meal, a couple of glasses of wine, just enjoying the company. There's a bit of discussion. Sometimes there's a bit of debate going back and forth. And then someone says this comment that sparks the parable. They say in verse 15, uh, someone says, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Someone's kind of just enjoying this meal, and it makes them think of the kingdom of heaven. And they say, blessed is the person who's going to be at that feast. And they're thinking of that, that day that the Old Testament talks about when God is going to intervene and set up his kingdom on earth. And for Jewish people picturing that, that was going to be a day of blessing and a day when God would make Israel a great nation again. And it would be about abundance and blessing and prosperity and, and peace for everybody. And sometimes in the Bible, that kingdom is described like a feast. It's described like a great banquet that God's going to lay on. And so this person is saying, well, that, that's going to be a fantastic feast and blessed is everyone who gets to go there. And of course, what they thought was the people invited to that banquet were good Jewish people, good faithful Jewish people that kept the law. Those were the ones that get the invitation to the banquet. And so Jesus tells this story to kind of challenge this guy's thinking a little bit and shift everybody's perception of what the kingdom of God and this great banquet is really like. And he tells them a story about a feast, about a guy that puts on an amazing banquet. And probably in this story, the kind of scene that you want to imagine is it's a small, small town. It's a small village that this is happening in. And there's someone in this town who puts on an amazing banquet. Obviously, this person's got considerable disposable income. There would have been a range of people in this town with different levels of income and so on, just like today. But someone's got the resources to put on an incredible banquet. And so he sends his servant out. He draws up the guest list first, and then he sends his servant out to invite the people that he'd decided to invite. And in the first century, when you had a banquet like this, the way the invitations worked is there was a two-stage process. Okay, It's not like today where you can just mail out your invitations or set up a Facebook event or something. You couldn't do that. So he sends out his servant. And the first thing that would happen is the servant would go around the homes of all the people that had been invited. Again, probably a small town, so this wouldn't have taken too long. Servant goes around and knocks on the door of the people that are on the guest list and says, hey, my master is putting on this incredible spread in a couple of weeks' time, and you are invited. Can you come? And, of course, everybody says, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm there. And so the servant would take down their details, and yes, okay, you're going to be there. That's great. He'd then come back to his master, 
And the master would see how many people had RSVP'd and then he'd know how many people to cater for because he'd have to then organize how many animals he needed to kill in order to put on this, this great lavish feast. He'd have to go and kill a calf and feed 50 people or whatever he did. So he would need to organize the catering for this banquet. And then the day itself of the feast comes along. And on the day, then what you would do is send the servant out again. And this is what the master does. He sends the servant out a second time. And this time, the servant's going around to all those people who had said the first time they were coming. And now he's knocking on the door and saying, hey, the feast is now ready. It's ready to go. It's all prepared. So now can you please get ready and come along because everything's prepared for you. And so up to this point, everything is unfolding normally. This is how it would have worked, this two-stage invitation process. This was all very familiar to people. And yes, 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 they would probably all have maybe been invited to a banquet like this or experienced something like this. But then the story takes a turn for the worse. And as the servant follows up with these second invitations and goes around the guest list knocking on doors, one by one, all of these guests start making excuses as to why they can't attend. And when you read these excuses that they make in verse 18, 19, and 20, just three examples, and maybe there were others, what strikes you, I think, about these excuses these people make are just how incredibly lame they are. Like, they're not even really trying. This is, these are not good excuses. This first guy says, I've just bought a field. This is in verse 18. I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. So in the first century, there's no way you would buy a field without going and seeing it first. This was a major purchase. Field was, fields, land that was held in families for generations. It was very carefully transacted. And if you were going to purchase a field, you would go and inspect the field. You would go and see the, the quality of the soil. You'd go and see how, how, the, how the sun was on this, on this field and make sure that it was absolutely what you wanted before you bought the field. Otherwise, this is like you buying a house and then saying, oh, now I've got to go and see it. Now I've got to go and have a look at it. I've just bought a house. I've got to go and have a look at it. Well, no one buys a house without going and having a look at it first. So this excuse is incredibly flimsy. This guy's saying, I bought the field. Now I just need to go and check it out. And then you have the second guy in verse 19 who says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now again, in this day and age, nobody is going to buy five oxen without first testing them out. This was a huge purchase. This was like farm machinery. Okay, this would be like buying a combine harvester. This was what you bought on the farm to get the big work done. It was huge investment, huge amount of money, and there's no way you would just impulsively buy these oxen without ever seeing them or trying them out to make sure they're balanced and they work together and they're all pulling together okay, you, you would make sure you thoroughly tested this before you bought it. But this guy's like, oh no, I just bought the oxen. I've got to now go and try them out. It's completely hollow as an excuse. It's completely flimsy. It's a lame excuse. And then this third guy, he's the worst. He says, I just got married, so I can't possibly come. Well, yeah, maybe it is a good excuse. I don't know. We're assuming this is a man, by the way. You know, maybe it's not. 
Who knows? But if it is, you know, I mean, it's, you can tell straight away this is a lie because there is no wife in the world that doesn't want to get dressed up, go to a banquet, have a good time. Come on, that, that, that person does not exist. So this guy, this guy and his wife have been invited to the banquet and they would have been invited together as a couple probably. And probably the host of the banquet was married. So there's, there's a couple hosting the banquet. They're inviting another couple. And, and so for this couple over here to say, oh, no, we can't come because we just got married, it's just embarrassing. And it's humiliating. And it's kind of shaming for the couple that's actually invited them over for an amazing meal. And I think that's kind of the point of what's going on. You get to the end of these excuses, and the, the cumulative effect that all this would have had would have just been to completely embarrass the host. You almost wonder whether that's the intention of some of these people. The excuses are so useless that may and lecture them for why they're not coming and how pathetic their excuses are, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he channels his anger into grace. He takes this anger that he's got and he redirects it into grace. And he says to his servants, all right, go out into the streets and the alleys of the town and find the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and bring them in. Bring them into my house. And so the servant goes out there, and he's, he's looking down now all these dark alleyways and in the back alleys of the town. And because in, in this day, if, if there were people with disabilities, physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, or people just living in poverty, they would have been social outcasts. There was no welfare system like today. These people would have had no dignity, no respect, no resources. They would have had to spend their days begging on street corners. They would never have been at a feast like this in their life. They may well never have even tasted meat in their life. Meat was already a delicacy. And so many of these people at the bottom of the social ladder may never have even tasted meat. And here's the servant coming up to them saying, hey, my master is just putting on this great banquet. There's space at the table. Why don't you come? And so off they go this motley bunch, and maybe some had to be carried. But off they went to the home of the master, and they all take their seats at the table. But then there's still room. There's still chairs that are open at the home of the master. And so he says to his servant, right, you're going to have to go out again. And this time, I want you to go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. So now we're talking about the servant has to go out beyond the little village, into all the roads that came into this village, all the sort of arterial roads into this village. And the kinds of people you would have found out there, uh, the travelers, people coming into the town or leaving the town, uh, the homeless, the drifters, the wanderers, people that didn't really have much of a place to stay at all, didn't know what they were doing perhaps. And he goes out into the highways and byways and he gathers up all of these waifs and strays. And he says, why don't you come into this banquet as well? The table's prepared, the meat's cooked, let's go. And you can sort of imagine this, this scene of a great procession of people. These ragtag misfits, the dropouts, the rejects, the cast-offs of society. This great procession of people all making their way through the village to the home of this master. And all filing in and taking their seats around the table, probably several tables, and sitting down and enjoying the most incredible meal they'd ever experienced in their life. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? It's a lovely story. But you have to remember that the way and reason Jesus is telling this story is to make a pretty powerful point to those that he's sitting with. 
Because he's looking around at all these Jewish people, these very well-to-do people, the kind of elite of Jewish society. And he's saying, you guys, you have been invited to this feast. You're the ones that the invitation was sent to first. You're on the guest list. But the problem is, you've rejected the invitation because you've rejected me. They've rejected Jesus, who is the servant. They've rejected the servant. And so Jesus says, because you're not recognizing who I am, because you're not recognizing that the Messiah is standing right here in front of you, you're not recognizing that God's Son is standing right here in front of you, because you've rejected me, you've rejected the Master. And because you've rejected the Master, you've rejected the feast. And you're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. And now, says Jesus, because you are rejecting this invitation, God is inviting the Gentiles into the kingdom of heaven. He is opening up the doors to people beyond just Israel, to all nations of the earth. And that's who we are. All those of us who are not Jews here, we are those who are on the, on the B list. We're on the, on the next list, and we get in to the feast by the sheer grace and mercy of the Father. The poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame in this story, that's us. We're all those from all nations. We get to come into the feast, not because we deserve it, but because we've got an incredibly generous host. And we now get invited in. It's an amazing privilege. It's an incredible invitation. But Jesus is saying to his guests, you know, all of these Gentiles are entering into this ahead of you. All of these people, these waifs and strays, they're all getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you guys because you have rejected. You think you're accepting it. You think you're going to be the one sitting at the table. What you don't realize is by rejecting me, you're rejecting the feast. You're rejecting the invitation. You're rejecting the master. And you're not going to have a seat at the table unless you can see who's standing right in front of you, the servant with an invitation in his hand. So for us, the message is incredibly powerful. We get into this feast because God has sent his servant to come and find us in the alleyways and the highways and the country lanes, and invite us to the home of the Father, to the home of the Master. But here's where I think this gets real for us, is even though we might be those who were invited in last, we can in our lives, I think those of us that are Christians, we can often act like those who were invited first. And you may have at a certain time in your life said, yes, I want to be a Christian. I want to come to this feast. I'm in. I accept Jesus. I accept the invitation. But then very often what happens is we spend the rest of our life making excuses as to why we can't really follow Jesus wholeheartedly, why we can't really take the step that he's calling us to take, why we really can't give everything over to him, why we can't fully embrace the life that he's wanting us to lead. And we make excuse after excuse after excuse. And I don't know whether any of these excuses sound familiar to you. They're kind of more first century things than 21st century things. But the ideas behind them, I think, resonate with us. You look at this first guy who says, I've just bought a field and I've got to go and have a look at it. Well, that field relates to his work. This is an excuse relating to work. The field he would have used for work, either by, by cultivating it, planting crops, or by farming animals on it, this would have been something that would have been productive for him. And so he is getting out of this banquet because he's too busy Dealing with work. And how often do our working lives crowd out our willingness to accept the invitation that God's giving us? You know, we, I don't, we don't mean to do this. I thought we, we're just trying to be good employees and we're, we're trying to be good employers and we're trying to hit our targets and keep the customers and the clients and the patients and so on happy and just keep the business going, do well in our jobs, provide. 
an income for ourselves and our families. But so subtly, our working lives can start to smother our relationship with God. And it often just happens because the voice of God just starts getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer in our life over time. And we just sense less and less and less of God's presence as work becomes more and more and more consuming. And then even the time we do have to focus on God at all, we're just exhausted. We're just drained and it's hard. And we don't even notice it, but our heart over time is growing harder and our faith is growing colder and our love for Jesus is just growing less and less and less. We're just becoming spiritually numb And it can be because work is just taking over more and more of our lives. All the time, God is inviting us to come. He's inviting us to the banquet. He's saying, hey, the feast is prepared. But we're saying, oh, God, look, I'm just just a bit too busy with work at the moment. If I can just get through the next five busy years, if I can just achieve this goal in 10 years' time, if I can just get through this, if I can just turn the corner and get after Christmas, whatever it is, we've always got that season where we think things are going to be better. But that season never comes. And we continue to allow our faith to be stifled out by all-consuming workplaces. What about this second guy? His excuse relates to his stuff. You know, he says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I've got to try them out. So if Jesus was telling this parable today, this guy would say, I've just bought five video games. I need to go and try them out. I've just bought five new guitar pedals. I need to go and practice. I've just bought five new pairs of shoes. They're not going to walk themselves. I'm going to go and try them out. You know? And very easily, I'm nothing wrong with having stuff, just like there's nothing wrong with work. Nothing wrong with stuff, but very easily and very subtly, our stuff can distract us from the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. And God is saying to us, hey, come and spend some time with me. Come and, come and let's talk. Come and pray. Come and connect with me. And we're like, no, God, I, I really want to do that but I'm re- I've really just got to focus right now on Fortnite. I've got to get through this game, and then I've got to do a few more games after this. I've got to get my strategy right. I'm just too busy. And God's saying, hey, come and, uh, come and spend some time in my word. Come and hear from me. I want to talk to you in the pages of Scripture. And we're saying, God, I'm just too busy. I've got this new coffee machine. I've got to perfect the flat white. I'm getting better at it. I've got to just keep working at it. You know, you can understand that, God, surely. You don't want me to spend all this money and then not get it right, do you? And I've got to get the coffee right. You know, I'll, I'll do that later. Uh, or God's saying, hey, why don't you come and spend time with my people? Come and be in community. Come and be at church. And we're like, well, God, I've got this amazing remote control helicopter. And all that money would be wasted if I didn't spend serious time getting it right. And it's not easy flying those things, you know, so I've got to spend the time. Now, any one of those things is fine, and and I'm not criticizing any of you that do or own any of those things, but you see how this happens. And so easily our hearts just get pulled towards these things, our stuff that we accumulate in our lives, and it distracts us from connecting and prioritizing and spending time with God and His people. And then this third guy who says, I've just got married, I can't come. It's an excuse relating to relationships, isn't it? And not just marriage. Let's not just pick on the married people. Any relationship. Because here's the reality. You are influenced by the people that you spend time with the most. That's just a reality. Whoever those people are in your workplace, in your families, among your friendship circles, whoever the people are that you are in closest proximity with, they are rubbing off on you right now. And you don't even see it. Their values are rubbing off on you. Their priorities are rubbing off on you. The way they see the world, their status symbols and badges of honor, they're rubbing off on you. 
What they cherish and hold dear, those become the things over time that you cherish and hold dear. And we get squeezed into the mold and the thinking of the people around us. And all the while, God is inviting us. He's inviting us to come to the table. But our our desire to be at the table is kind of diminished because we're pulled away by the people that we're hanging out with. And so what this parable does, I think, is to expose all of these flimsy, lame excuses that we are throwing out to try and justify why we are not embracing the kind of life and calling that Jesus is holding out for us. You know, and, and we can justify these things. I know and we can rationalize them and there's 10 reasons why this is all okay and you don't understand and my situation is different and if only you knew this and I know, I know, I know. But the way God sees these things, they are just lame excuses. That's all they are. And that's what this parable does. It just lays them bare as excuses. They're not reasons, they're just excuses. But the great thing is, you've got to remember the character of the master, the host, that he takes that anger that he feels, and he does feel angry because half the time we're wasting our lives with this stuff. So he feels angry about that. But he takes that anger and he channels it into grace. So his intention is not to make you feel more guilty about your life, but to hold out that invitation again to you and say, the invitation's still there. It's always there. You can take up that invitation anytime you want. The servant's still standing there with that invitation in his hand saying, come to the feast. Even though you've made 50 excuses and you're still making them, here's the invitation, it's for you today. And all we need to do is accept it. But it does mean saying no to those excuses. It does mean being willing to face up to whatever excuses are right in front of us. Maybe just that one excuse that you find yourself making over and over and over again. So often you've stopped noticing that you're making that excuse. But it means taking that and laying that down and saying yes to whatever it is that Jesus is putting in front of you. So there might be one particular step that that God's got right in front of you today. And you know what that is. And it's there and maybe it's been there for a while and it's just circling around there and you're just holding back from it. You're just hanging back and you're not sure and you're making excuses. But today Jesus is saying, I want you to put those excuses aside and I want you to step into this. I know there's a lot of unknowns on the other side. I know there's risk on the other side. I know it's a huge step of faith, but I want you to step into this. It's what I'm calling you to do. Maybe there's some area of surrender in your life. There's something you're holding on to really tightly that you haven't given up to God. Some area you're controlling and holding back, and you know you've kind of been wrestling with this thing, and God's saying, hey, today's the day. Just stop making excuses. I've prepared the banquet for you. Stop making excuses. Just come. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you keep on going back to time after time after time, and you're excusing it, and you're rationalizing it, and telling yourself each time why that's going to be the last time, and God's saying, hey, no more excuses today. No more excuses, because that's holding you back from the feast. I want you to put that to death. It's part of the old life. I want you to put that aside. I want you to reach out for the help that you need and the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to move forward in that area. No more excuses today. And we've got to remember the reason God asks us to give up these excuses is not just to make us better people, but so that we can come to the banquet. And we maybe feel like that's some sort of duty or some burden or some chore, but God has prepared this incredible feast for us. He wants to nourish you. He wants to quench your thirst. He wants to feed you spiritually. More than anything, He wants community with you. That's really the point of the banquet. It was relationship. It's not just to have nice stuff. 
It's not just to have a good experience. Ultimately, what God wants is relationship. That's the heart of the banquet, is that we would dine with the king and he with us, that we would have community with him. And God is saying, whatever is hindering that community, whatever's stopping you, come to the feast. Put it aside and say yes where you've been saying no. Accept that invitation and stop rejecting it because of your lame excuses. C.S. Lewis once talked about, he gave this illustration. He said a lot of Christians are content with making mud pies in the slums rather than accepting the offer of a holiday at sea that God offers us. And I wonder whether we could adapt that for this parable and say, for whatever reason, so many Christians seem to prefer eating from the rubbish scraps. We seem to prefer eating from the dregs rather than take up the offer of the feast at the master's home. Maybe we just don't really believe it. Maybe we think it's too good to be true. We just get distracted by all these things. But Jesus is saying to put these things aside today and come to the banquet. The table has been prepared. The feast is ready. So he invites you to come and join this procession of people, join this motley bunch that are making their way every day to the home of the master. And he invites you to come and take your place at that table and enjoy the richest of fare and dine with the King of Kings. That's the invitation for you today, if you'll accept it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible table that you have prepared for us. We thank you, Jesus, that as we think about communion now, we just get a little taste of that banquet. We thank you that even today we can have like a little appetizer of the final banquet, that just enough to whet our appetite of what that final feast in your kingdom is going to be. But Father, I pray that now you just bring to our mind all the ways in which we're making these lame excuses to you for whatever it is that's holding us back, God. Help us to see them for what they are. Help us to stop trying to justify them. Help us today just to lay them down and say, God, no more excuses. No more trying to duck and weave out of your calling and your claim on my life. I'm here, I'm yours, and I want to come to the feast. Lord, and help us to embrace that banquet by connecting with you, by loving your word, loving your people, and continually drawing closer and closer to you and our lives. We thank you for the privilege and the honor of being invited to be guests at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.